So we're in our purpose series. We're in week four. And as you see in title, week four, my purpose is community. We're on, if you've got your green booklets, there's space on page 10, the blank page for notes for this morning. So you can put at the top there as our heading. My purpose is community. And some of you might not like that or, or might, it might seem a bit strange in those things, but you're kind of like, how is my purpose community? But we'll get into that and that's what we're going to be about this morning. But I just want to start off by reading that same verse out of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And you can turn there in your Bibles if you've got them or click on over there. We're going to be jumping around Ephesians a fair bit. So keep your finger in Ephesians as we read various other verses this morning. So that Ephesians 2, chapter 10, and, and hopefully uh, chapter 2, verse 10. And hopefully you'll, you'll know this one off by heart by the end of it. Um, it reads like this out of the NIV. It says, For we, that's us as the church, are God's handiwork or masterpieces created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So over the last few weeks, we've explored that as kind of the reason that, that, that we have a purpose. So that's kind of where we start from, is that God saves us by faith through grace and Saved by grace through faith. Eh? By grace through faith, sorry. And then we learned that out of that, that God gives us a purpose to do. And we, we started looking at what is our purpose. So we looked at the first three and we said, um, well, the, yeah, the first three weeks we've looked at my purpose is Christ. And so that is to be with Jesus. That is to prioritize our relationship with him. And that is our need for him and his presence in our lives. And then we said my purpose is Christ likeness. So to become like Jesus. So from spending time with Jesus, we, come, we become like him. You know that we are hardwired to become like those or, or the, the environments that we spend time in and around, we become like that. It's an incredible thing to see. But if, if you send anybody out, you, you send him in to go and be a farmer and it won't be too long before he's got two tones, short shorts and gumboots on. <laughs> because it, you figure it out. Like it's just how we roll in those things. And that's all that coastal sells. And that's what you can buy. So you end up wearing those clothes and you, you look. And so the, the, the ones that we spend time with, and, and you know, the, the Bible actually teaches us as well that our friends influence us. The people who we spend a lot of time around influence us. They influence the language we use, the music we like, the way we dress is influenced by those. So we are, we are hardwired to become like those people and things that we spend a lot of time around. And so if we spend a lot of time with Jesus, we become more and more Christ-like. And in our discipleship, as we've broken it down so many times, it's the point of our discipleship is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. And so those are the first two. My purpose is Christ and Christ-likeness. And today we're looking at my purpose is community. And by community, we mean not just being with other people. We mean belonging to Christ's community or the church. So one way of understanding our, our God-given purpose is to understand what God's own purpose in giving us this church is and, and what he's trying to achieve. Like, what is God trying to do? And he, and he's not, he doesn't really hide it very much. He, he doesn't make it hard for us to discover. So a chapter earlier, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, it says that his purpose is to bring unity to all things under Christ. To bring unity to all things under Christ. So his purpose is, is to give us Christ. So to give us Jesus. So to give us a Messiah, a Savior, one to be with to make it possible for us to be with him. So if our purpose is to, is to have Christ and to know Christ and to give ourselves to Christ. Romans 8.29 also says that his purpose and his plan has always been to conform us to the image and the likeness of his son. So in other words, to make us Christ-like. So our purpose is to give ourselves to that. And then in this verse we read today is that uh, Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10. So two chapters over from chapter 1. We're going to read Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 on what God says for my purpose as community. It reads like this, chapter 3, verse 10. God's purpose was that, now, and it's hard to get it more obvious than that. Like you're asking, what is God's purpose? It says, God's purpose was that. Now, through the church, can you say through? The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So God's purpose First up, in this big thing, as we're looking at my purpose as community, God's purpose is to give the world his church. It's an incredible thing. You think, man, he gave us Jesus so that we could be the church. Yes, that's right. But then it goes on to say that the point of the church isn't just to be a holy huddle. It's not just to be 
you know, the place where we try and, like, we try and act our best for two hours a week. It's not the place where you come and get free coffee and biscuits. Hopefully you do, but that's not the point. The point of being the church is so that God can make his manifold wisdom known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms through the church. We're expecting Jesus or the angels or maybe somebody else, maybe God himself, you know, but God's purpose is to give the world his church. And so if his purpose is to give the world the church, then our purpose in that is to give ourselves to the church. Or more specifically, for us to to be the church that God is calling us to be. Now, I don't know if you're interested in in the original Greek. Not many of us read original Greek testaments, uh, New Testaments, but um, it's interesting sometimes to look at those words. I don't often like to do it because it just, it's, the translators generally do a very good job of those things. But what happens is we use words and the meaning of words change over time, and we sometimes have our own concepts that we assign to those words. So in this, we're going to look at two, two of the Greek words, the one for church and the one for manifold. So manifold, maybe like exhaust manifold, I don't know, that's how we use manifold a lot. But what he's actually saying, and we'll get to what he's actually saying about that, but it's not, it's not an exhaust manifold. But the church, the word that, um, that is used there in, in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10, the Greek word is, is ecclesia or ecclesia. It's transliterated, it's E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A. And what it does is, it's a, it's a plural word. So it's not a singular thing. So it's not a one. It's not an individual. And what it does is it highlights our communal calling and that God's purpose for our lives is not just an individual, but it's collective. So in the small groups we're talking about uh, that meets during the week, we, we talk and we're exploring a lot more of our individual purpose. So, so who am I? Who has God made me to be? How can I discover who he's uniquely created me to me? But the point of doing the, the, it different on Sundays is because that thing, that individual, that uniqueness that you are, that beautiful creation that God has made you to be only you, fits into a larger purpose. You're not, you're not just a lone ranger off on your own. You're, you're, you're unique and you're beautiful and you're amazing and you're, you're one of a kind, but you're also part of something bigger. You, that uniqueness that God's put in you is for a bigger purpose than just you. And so this word that um, that is used for church, that's translated church, it literally means the called out ones. And it, was, it wasn't used just in the Bible. It was a word that was in use in first century biblical times, which meant people who were called out of the general community to gather together, and usually it had a connotation of a political purpose. So people would come together for a town meeting or whatever. Or there were certain groups that were called out and they would say, hey, come out and meet together. We need to discuss this thing. We need to fulfill a certain purpose. So they were, it was a group of people that were called out of the general population to come and meet together in a big assembly. So that's why sometimes it's called an assembly. Sometimes in the older, different or older translations, that word might not be church. It might be an assembly. Assembly for us has connotations of school. And we think of sitting there listening to teachers drone on. Fortunately, in this school, it's not like that. It's different. <laughs> Very different. But there's a thing to notice, is that our sense of communal or collective or, or the, the main calling, the big callings that we're looking at, those things come first in terms of order of priority, not my own individual calling. My individual calling must be subverted to the big callings of God. Otherwise, you live outside of God's general, unique um, or, or revealed purposes, the things that are obvious in his word. The, the individual one is very subjective. And so if you submit that to the big purpose of God, you can be sure that however you are serving, you're still serving the big purpose of God that he has. So the church is God's people called out to him, called out by him and belonging to him. Each of us is, is called individually and uniquely and personally purposed by God. But we're not summoned to be a bunch of individuals, but rather a community of faith. So the story of the church is, is much like the story of Israel. And the, you know, in the Bible, it was people were, were referred, God referred, spoke to individuals and families up until the Exodus. And once he got to the Exodus, God then refers to his people, Israel, as his people. He said, these are my people. And so he starts talking rather than individually starts using a whole community, a whole nation, the people of Israel as 
the descendants of the same individuals and families that God spoke to in Genesis um, all the way through the, the beginning of the Bible, but now fused into a, a people and a community by God's liberating acts of bringing them out of uh, Egypt and his promise making as they walk through the wilderness. So thus, over and against histories in voluntary groupings such as the tribe and the city-state and the nation, there now stands a new community composed of willing members held together by God's liberating act and his promise-making activities. And so that's essentially what that word ecclesia speaks to, is it speaks to our commonality, our being called out not just to be an individual, but our called out to something, our called out to a grouping, our called out to a community. The word we use is church. Now the Greek word for manifold, I'm going to butcher this a bit more, but it's polypoikilos. Polypoikilos. Many poikilos. So it shows that God's, and, and what that word means, poly is obviously, we, we understand that we use that word and that just shows some of the Greek etymology in English, but it means many or a lot. And so what he's showing is that there's this multifaceted wisdom of God, this, this beautiful, varied creation and, and beautiful, like absolutely diverse wisdom of God that he puts in there. It's not just boring and one-sided, but he says the word can mean multi-textured or multi-colored or multi-layered. And in this message, I hope that, that that's what you get a glimpse of the church, that you don't see the church just as as this boring one-dimensional thing, but that you get to see it for the beauty that it is, for the individuals that it is. The danger is that we do one of two things or both. Well, it's hard to do both, but we'll, some of us will do one, some of us, and if you know the saying, some of us will miss the forest for the trees, and some of us will miss the trees for the forest. And we've, it's, it's not an either or, so it's not, it's, you know what I mean? It's a both and. It's the individuals and it's the corporate. It's both your uniqueness and God's multi-layered multi-textured beauty that is created in the church community. So much of what we're going to share and go through today is, um, comes from the, the thinking and kind of the ideas and, and just the articulation of it comes from a chap called John Tyson in a book, Beautiful Resistance. I've quoted it a few times. And uh, if you haven't read one, if you're looking for something to read, it is a real good read. John Tyson with Beautiful Resistance. And we're going to look at firstly, kind of who, so, so who does God say and who does the Bible reveal as the church? So, so, like, who does he say we are? And then we're going to look at what are the implications of that for us. So what does that mean? If, if that's what God says about the church, then what does that mean for us? So three things, kind of the overarching, the main three metaphors that God uses for a church, for the church in the New Testament. And the first one is the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. Now, some of the men may struggle with this and going like, I'm in there and in me and like, that's weird that I'm a bride, but stick with me on this. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Do you see that last sentence there? There's a, there's a beauty that God sees in the church. A radiant church. Without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Yeah, I have the, I have the privilege of being involved in, in some marriages and some weddings. And when you at a wedding, one of the most beautiful moments in that wedding is the moment, not necessarily when the bride arrives, but when the groom turns around and sees her. The last wedding I did, it brought the groom to tears. That's how good looking the bride was to him. And it is a beautiful, beautiful thing when you see that. And that is how the groom sees the church. When he looks at the church, and, and, and he, he knows that that bride is, the, 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 the weddings that I do, he knows that that bride is not perfect. He knows that she's going to grow and change and she's got a lot to do. But he looks at her, and in that moment, he sees the radiant beauty without spot or blemish or wrinkle, doesn't notice any of that stuff, just sees the beauty in her. And to an extent, that's how God sees us as the church. He sees us as that radiant, beautiful bride. It's amazing how when, 
And, and, and you know, for us, if we don't see that, if we miss that, if we only see the problems and the dirt and the mess, and, and we're aware of that, but I'll get to that now. But if we, only, if we don't see the beauty that is in the church, it's going to be very hard for us to give our lives to that thing. If we don't see the church in the way that God sees it in this moment, it's going to be very hard to, to go, I'm, an, I'm willing to surrender my life for that thing. But when you see couples that are young couples that are in love, and it's, a, it's an incredible thing to see. You, you see this young person go from a completely self-centered, I'm going to live my life my way, to like nothing else matters but that person. And they drop everything. And like the sports they used to do, the friends they used to have, the place, nothing else matters but that. Other. It's almost like everything in their life becomes centered around that person. And that's the beauty of romantic love. And that's why it's such a strong image that God uses it because it's one of the strongest emotions that we as humans can feel is that romantic love towards another person. And so God uses that image to go, this is how I love the church. I see her as my bride, my bride-to-be. Though flawed and broken, the church is one that Jesus loves. And if we're going to be with Jesus and become more like Jesus, one of the things he does is love the church. And we need to love the church too. You know, some of us are are not cautious about how we speak about the church. And I want to just offer us a, a word of caution here, is that when we speak about the church, we use that word flippantly sometimes in terms of how we're referring to it, whether it's local church or universal church. But please remember that when you speak about the church, you're speaking about the bride of Christ. And I don't enjoy it when people speak badly about my wife. It doesn't go well. Those conversations very rarely turn out happily. And so we should be careful how we speak about Jesus' bride. Yes, the church is flawed. And yes, the church is broken in parts. And it doesn't get it right all the times. But it's still the bride-to-be of Jesus. So let's be cautious how we speak about her. One way of reading the Bible when we interpret it is reading it as a love story. There's different lenses we can look at when we read the Bible to help us understand the, the, the big picture of what God is doing. And one of those is as a love story. And we can see it if we look at Genesis 1 and 2. God creates and he starts. And the first thing he does with people is he, there's a marriage. There's a wedding. God said, not good for man to be alone. And so he makes them two. They're both in his image. And there's a wedding. Effectively, there's a wedding that happens. There's no white dress and there's no ceremony. We know there's no white dress because it says they were both naked. <laughs> and so there's this beautiful union that God creates in the beginning, marriage, this formation, that he, this, this institution that God creates in the beginning. And then we jump right to the end, Revelation 21 and 2, and there's another marriage. There's the wedding of the groom and the bride, the Jesus and his church. And so the Bible opens and closes with marriage. Jesus isn't committed to the church because he has to be. He's committed to the church because he wants to be. God is in love with this woman, the church. Now, if we, if we look at this wedding metaphor, if we, if we stick with it just for a bit, when God used Moses to call Israel out, and he called them out and called them into their destiny, he makes four promises in the beginning of, of Exodus, Exodus chapter 6, and they're in verses 6 to 7, and he makes these four promises to the Israelites. He says, I will take you out. Not as in, like, I'm going to take you out, bro. Like, as in, I will, I will take you out of slavery. So, sorry, I just suddenly read that. I was like, yo, that could be wrong. I had, a, I had a friend whose dad used to say to him, I brought you into this world. I'll take you out of it. It's not, it's not that kind of take you out. It's a, anyway, you'll see, because the other three, they've got to line up. So he says, I will take you out of slavery. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. And I will take you to me. Not just taking you out of something, but taking, taking us to something. And these four promises, amazingly, in the, in, the, in the ancient biblical times, are the same four promises that a, a young man would make to his bride on their wedding day. And Ezekiel highlights this in greater detail in chapter 16 of Ezekiel. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. It says, I bathed you with water and put ointments on you. It's God speaking to the nation of Israel. He says, I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. I put a ring on your nose and earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. 
You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. Your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. That's God speaking to the nation of Israel. That's how he is saying, you don't realize what I've done for you. Look at how I've made you. You want to be like everyone around you, but I've made you so much more beautiful. So if God's purpose is to give the world his bride, then our purpose must be to give ourselves for his bride, the church. Or more specifically, to be the bride. We're in this together, to be the bride. Now, I know, as I said, some men may struggle with this image of being the bride, but fortunately, we're also the army of God. So as Tyre and Daniel shared many years, it's a great picture. It's a, like a wedding dress, but with army boots on. So we are ready to march out. Okay, so that's the first one. The church is the bride of God. The, the second overarching emphasis we, um, metaphor we get is the church is the temple of God. Ephesians chapter 2, turn back a couple of chapters from, from chapter 5 to Ephesians chapter 2 again. And out of verses 19 to 22, I'm just going to read portions of there, but out of those four verses, <clears throat> Paul writes, and he says, You are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So the story of, of the Bible is not just a love story, but it's also a story of God finding a people that he will inhabit life with. He will do life with. He will presence himself with. From the very beginning, God's, God's purpose has been to be present with people. Genesis opens, and it says that in the beginning, God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. Physically, God was present with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day. Genesis 3 verse 8. And because of sin, one of the biggest things that we suffer is that separation from God's presence. That separation brings with it a whole lot of consequences. And then the, the, the rest of human history up until this point has been God's redeeming action and God's love and grace and mercy being worked out so that we can get back into the presence of God. So that we can be again with Him. The entire Revelation 21, 22, and 3 says, says it like this, talking about the creation that's going to come. So 20, Revelation 22 is, is the last chapter in the Bible. 21, the one before that, um, is just this prophecy about what John saw of the coming kingdom when God's presence would be back with his people again. And he says it like this. He says, I didn't see a temple in the city. Talking about this future city where the presence of God will be and we'll all be with God. He says, I didn't see a temple in the city. Because, and this would have been a crazy thing to the Jews because they understood that the temple was the place where God's presence was. I'll get to that now. But he says, I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, meaning Jesus, are its temple. The city doesn't need sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of the Lord gives it light and the Lamb, the lamb <clears throat> is its lamp. So God's presence among his people has always been his heart. God's vision was not a building to belong in, but a people to walk among. God's vision, what he saw, wasn't a building to belong in, but a people to walk among. It's amazing when you think of that, because we often, we, we like to make holy places. We like to make buildings holy places. We like to have somewhere we, and there's nothing inherently wrong in that. But don't limit to God. Don't limit God to being here in your week. Don't go, this is where you've got to come and be with God. This is where you come and be with God's people. And you might experience God in a different way because it's corporate. But this is not the only place where God is. God didn't want to be bound by a temple. He wanted a people to walk among. It's crazy. There's a lot of stuff in Exodus. And one of them is that, and it's interesting, we use it when we, when we teach kids about hiking and about looking after nature and things like that. But God actually says to the Israelites in Exodus, he says, I think it's Exodus. He says, hey, I want you to make sure that you don't go to the toilet outside your tent. If you're going to go to the toilet, please go far outside the camp and bury it. So that when the Lord is walking among you, he doesn't stand in it. 
It's, it's in there, I promise you. But, that's the, but the point of that being is that, you know, sometimes we think, wait, hang on, God's teaching us how to use the bathroom in the bush? No, God's saying, I want to walk among you. I want to be there. I want to, and so as much as he's got the tabernacle and the tent of meeting, God's going, I want to be walking in amongst your tents. I want to be in those places where you don't expect me. God's vision was not a building to belong in, but a people to walk among. Exodus chapter 33, Moses understands this beautifully, where God says, right, what I'm going to do, Moses, I'm going to send you up into this next place, and I want you to go ahead, and I want you to go there, and you're going to do amazing things. And Moses says, that's wonderful, Lord, but I'm not going unless you come with me. I I don't want to be sent out by you. I want to be with you. Wherever I go, I want to be with you. You see, Moses understood that if we don't have the presence of God with us, there's nothing to distinguish us from the rest of the nations. That was Moses' response. He said, if you don't come with us, what use are we? Are we no different from anybody else? That's the distinguishing feature in the community of God is the presence of God with us. Ezekiel chapter 10 tells a sad story of the day the presence of God left the Old Testament temple. So God's presence has departed from the temple. For those who maybe are unchurched, you don't know, the temple was a building that the Israelites built and it had kind of three main sections to it. And the middle section, like the very inside, it was called the Holy of Holies, was this cubic style room and there was the Ark of the Covenant was in there. And that was where the presence of God would reside in that place. And it was such a holy place. It was such a, uh, a revered place that, that only one day per year, one person who had cleansed himself properly would go into that holy place to be physically in the presence of God. And they were so worried about it that he had bells on the bottom of his cloak so that they could hear if he was constantly moving about. So they could hear the bells tingling the oak standing outside. But then what they also had is they had a rope tied around one of his ankles so that if the bell stopped for any length of time, they could pull him out. Because if you went into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies and you, you weren't the person to be in that presence because of the sin that was in you and on you, you would be struck down dead. That was how awful the presence of God was. Or filled the presence was God. F-I-L-L-E-D, not F-U-L. That is how much they revered entering into the presence of God. And so they saw the temple as an extremely holy place. And they revered the temple, and they, that was where God was. And yet we read this thing in Ezekiel 10 of how God's presence leaves the temple. But what Israel does is they don't then go and seek the temple. They hold on to the rituals of the temple. This empty shell, this pure building now. Now there's nothing in it to make it. See, the thing that made the temple special was the presence of God. It wasn't the building it according to the directions and given the right things and this and the gold filigree on the walls and the 47 pomegranates and the brass seas and the, if you've read all that stuff, it's quite a picture. I mean, it's, if God doesn't love architects, I don't know who he does love because there's so much in there for an architect. It's like, this is amazing. But that's not what makes the temple incredible. What makes it incredible is the presence of God. And when that thing leaves, the Israelites hold on to the shell. They hold on to this lifeless, empty shell. And we see that when Jesus comes at his time of, so that, that temple gets destroyed and they, they rebuild it. And when Jesus comes, they've, they've already spent, the Jews have already spent 46 years rebuilding the temple. And it was breathtaking to hold. It was an incredible building, particularly in their day and age, as it was this amazing creation that people had made. The rabbis used to have a saying that said, no one has seen a truly beautiful building unless he has seen the temple in Jerusalem. That's how they regard it. They say, yes, have you seen this amazing tower they've built in Paris? Yeah, but nobody's seen anything until they've seen the temple in Jerusalem. The the Eiffel Tower wasn't built then. I realize that. I know that. I'm just using an example of going, you know, you could could say you'd seen beautiful things, but they said, not not until you've got something proper to compare it to. So it was an, an incredible structure, but it was lifeless. And Jesus said these he, see, he speaks against this building and the temple. And, and they take it as him speaking against the presence of God. But what he's saying is, what Jesus is actually saying to them, and it's the same as what John chapter 1 verse 14 says. John chapter 1 14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling, literally spread his tent among us. Speaking of Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying to them is he's saying that presence that departed in Ezekiel is back. But it's back in a person, not in a place. 
You're missing it. Jesus is saying, I'm going to destroy this temple and raise it up. I'm going to destroy the presence, of, the presence of God and raise it up in three days. Speaking of himself being crucified and raised up. And he's going, you're missing it. You're hanging on to this building so hard that you're missing the presence of God in me. I am the very presence of God. And you're not seeing it because you're so blinded by your rituals of the temple. During the crucifixion, there were... The, you might have read that part where the veil is torn in the temple from top to bottom. So between the, the holy place and the most holies was this massive curtain. And it was a thick thing. It wasn't just like a, you know, it wasn't just like a blockout. It was even thicker than blockout. It was heavy, thick curtain that they hung across there. And this thing tore, and it tore from top to bottom at the, at the moment of crucifixion. And what it was is it's a beautiful picture of two things. One, it's that we're allowed into God's presence, that by the death of Christ, we are cleansed from sin, and so we are able to enter into God's presence. But it's also a great picture of how God is, the presence of God is released from that holy of holies. He's no longer bound into one single place. God's presence is released outside of that holy place. God has left the building. Through the blood of Jesus... And our union with him, we as the collective people of God, have become the temple of God. Paul says as much to the Corinthians. And I, I, I'm grateful that, you know, in English sometimes we struggle with words because like you, is it you singular or you plural? Most other languages it's easy to tell whether it's single or plural. We've got to go like American. We've either got to go y'all or we've got to yella. Maybe we should do it yellow. It'll be easier for us to understand. But he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Fortunately, the, the translators have, have helped us with it. But he says, don't you know that you yourselves, in other words, you plural, are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. midst. Your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred. And you together are that temple. It's incredible. We have become the temple of God. We have become that place where people should come to to experience the presence of God. And yet God takes us and for the rest of the week sends us out. So you individually and you corporately are the temple of God. You cannot be it on your own and you cannot only be it on Sunday when we come together. It's both. You are the temple of God. The church is the temple of God embodying his very presence on earth. And Jesus is committed to his church because he's committed to his presence dwelling on earth among us. His presence isn't found in Zion or Sinai or anywhere special, but it's found in ordinary people like you and I. That's where God's presence is found. So if God's purpose is to give the world his bride and his temple, our purpose must be to give ourselves to the bride and the temple, his church, or again, to be the bride and to be the temple. I know this is a lot, but it gets better. The church, overwhelmingly, third thing that is referred to is, so the church is the bride, the church is the temple, and the church is the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 15. Christ's purpose is to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. So this amazing picture, Jesus is the head, we are the body. And this is a profound revelation for Paul. And it's amazing how, you know, I think Paul got most of this revelation from his Damascus Road experience. So Acts chapter 9, Paul was a Pharisee, he was persecuting the church, he was going around, um, basically taking Jews that had started to follow Jesus and either having them killed or having them kicked out of society. So removed from the synagogue, removed from Jewish life, don't do business with them, don't do life with them, don't talk to them, effectively cutting them off spiritually and economically and socially from, from everybody else in their community, which was kind of like a death sentence. But some of them physically killing. We read that he was at um, the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 8. But in, in Acts 9, Paul has this Damascus Road experience where he's on the way to the, the city of Damascus and Jesus meets him along the way and, and he strikes him off his horse, blinding light, and Paul's lying there and he hears this voice from heaven. And incredibly, Jesus says to him, he says, Saul, Saul, 
why do you persecute the church? If you've read it, that's not what it says. Just see if you're paying attention here. Paul, Jesus says to Paul, he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul goes, who are you, Lord? And in that moment, Paul has a revelation that the people of God are the very embodiment of Jesus. The church is the body of Christ. Jesus is saying, when you touch my church, you touch me. When you persecute the church, you persecute Jesus. We are the body of Christ. Have you ever had, if you think you can't speak any other languages, all you have to do is during load shedding at night, walk around barefoot around your lounge or anywhere where there's a dresser or anything like that and have your pinky toe catch something in the dark. And it's amazing. The, like the tongues that just come out. We just speak in tongues as we pray about the pain we're suffering. But this incredibly small part of our body affects so much of the rest of us. I mean, so it happened recently. That's why I'm using it as an analogy. But it's like I get hot. I get, it affects my, like, phys- I start to get, like, physically hot because I'm so angry. And it affects my emotional state and well-being. And, like, have you ever seen a kid with a sore hand? And they come to you and they're like, yo, my hand is so sore. What, what happened to your legs? They're nothing but, yo, my hand is so sore. You know, why are you limping if your hand is... It's amazing how that pain affects the rest of the body. Like you, if, you, if you cut off a finger, that finger dies, but the rest of the body suffers. And it's the same with us in the church. You can't be a part of the body and be separate and be a part and be doing your own thing. The rest of the body suffers. You're going to die and the rest of the body is going to suffer pain and indignity. Some people say it would be easier to follow Jesus today if he were alive on earth. They're like, man, if Jesus, you know, just, if Jesus was here, man, it would be good. I'd like to follow him. But unfortunately, Jesus didn't share those same sentiments. He said to us that it's better for us that he goes and sends us the Holy Spirit. John 16, verse 7, he says that his ascension is an advantage for us. And he says it's an advantage, not only for us, but for the rest of the world, because we then become those who represent Jesus to the rest of the world. And I think Jesus wants, wants us to grow and to have agency in following him, and he, and he wants to partner with us. He really does. And it's risky, friends. It is super risky to pick people to be your representatives for anything because they're probably going to let you down. And you know why God uses such imperfect people? Because that's the only kind there are. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, God seems to do nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. He commands us to do slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfectly in the twinkling of an eye. It's such a beautiful way of looking at it. God chooses to use us. You are chosen to be a part of this thing. That's an incredible way of looking at it. It's an incredibly freeing way of looking at it. You see, again, God didn't want a domain to dominate. He wants a people to partner with. God's not just looking for a space and a country to overwhelm. God didn't want a domain to dominate. He wanted a people to partner with. He's looking for people to partner with him in his world. God chooses to work with us because it's good for us. So if God's purpose is to give the world his bride, his temple, and his body... Our purpose is to give ourselves for that bride, temple, and body. Give give ourselves to be the bride and the temple and the body. What does that mean for us? Now what? So what is our response? This is who God has said the church to be. So what is our response to this thing? Firstly, never lose hope for the church. A lot of people are bleak about the church. It is not hard to find people who are unhappy with the church. And many, much of that, rightly so. The church has not got a great track record of doing things perfectly well. Yes, she is stained. 
Yes, she is broken, but look around. She's still here. And Jesus is still at work within the church. And because of Jesus' commitment to the church, not because of anything the church does, but because of Jesus' commitment to the church, the bride is becoming beautiful. His presence is tangible, and his body is beginning to function. So when we're discouraged by the failures and the flaws in the church, let us lean in again to Jesus' unceasing, inexhaustible love for her and his patience with her. Do you know that Jesus has no plan B? The church is plan A. We're it. He's put all his eggs in one basket. So don't let disillusionment or discouragement take root in us because of what we see in the flaws of the church. Let's be like that groom who turns and sees the bride on the wedding day, in that moment, and is overwhelmed. The church is Jesus' bride, but the challenge of loving a bride over the many centuries that she's been around is her promiscuous heart. If any of you have read the book of Hosea, you'll know that God calls this prophet to marry a prostitute. And she keeps leaving, and God says, go back and fetch her and bring her back. Go back and fetch her and bring her back. And it's a picture of God's dealing with the nation of Israel, but I think also it's how the church goes, where God keeps going. He goes and brings us back out of that thing. He says, oh, no, you've been enamored by the idolatry of the world. You've been enamored by this thing in the world. This, this thing has stolen my praise again because you're giving it there. Let me bring you back. And it's the demonstration of his grace and his mercy and his unconditional love that God keeps seeking out the church and keeps bringing her back. However many times we fail, God keeps calling us back and bringing us in. So God's vision and passion for the church should give us incredible hope. As much as we all have things we hate about the failures of the church. And, you know, it's very easy to point a finger at someone else in the church. But you know that old adage you teach kids, eh? When you point at someone else, there are three fingers pointing back at you. We've all been guilty of those things, of offending people, saying the wrong thing, not reaching out in the right moment. We've been guilty of hurting others. And if you haven't, welcome to church. It must be your first Sunday. Any length of time in community and you'll know that it hurts. There are times when it's painful and it's uncomfortable. And yet Jesus still says, man, this is my radiant bride. And I'm going to make her spotless and beautiful. And so we are becoming more and more like that. The church can be beautiful because God's grace is beautiful. Not because of anything we can achieve. So that's the first one. Never lose hope in the church. Secondly, use your gifts to strengthen its ministries. So the gifted series that we did would have just highlighted those. If you haven't done the series, it doesn't mean you can't do anything in the church. But what it does do is it just shows us how we can serve in the church. 1 Peter 4.10 says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. In other words, the gifts we have are the grace of God in us. And the way we are to steward those things is by serving other people with those gifts. If you've ever served somebody with the gift you have, you'll know that the joy and the fulfillment that you get out of serving is far more than you gave to that person in the service you did for them. And nobody can take that thing away from you. When you serve someone, it is incredibly fulfilling because you are doing what you're made to do. You are being who God made you to be. And no salary, no amount of chocolate or high praise that you get for serving someone else can give you that same sense of fulfillment that serving out your gift to others will do. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6 says, From Jesus, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part. Can you say each part? Each part. Does its work. That's you and me. You see, sometimes, and unfortunately, we get to the place where some of us have wanted to professionalize service or ministry in the church. And we go, wait, hang on, he's paid to do this or that. Well, she's paid to be part of this and that. So let's let them do it. I'm happy to just pay that person to go and do that thing. That's not what it says. It doesn't say as, as each paid part does its work. It says as each part does its work. Each part. You see, your service in the church is part of the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. We in this church have areas for you to serve on a Sunday. If you wanted to find out, you're like, hey, I'm not sure, man, come in and serve. You think you want to preach and teach? We'll set you up in kids' ministry. 
It's a beautiful teaching ground. One, because kids are, kids are very forgiving. Two, because they're very honest. They're not polite like adults and will sit and look and nod. They're like, yo, oh, this is boring. And they start like playing a thing and poke poke next to them. Do you all remember what I taught you last week? No. Damn it. Come on, guys. I'm not that bad. But it's a beautiful place to serve. Because when you see that light bulb come on in a kid's life and you see them go, hey, don't do that because that's wrong. We need to treat other people like we need, want to be treated. You're like, yes, you're getting it. And that's a beautiful moment. And then you realize that my serving is worth something. Or like when you serve and you, you teach kids ministry, I don't want to expose your age, but a long time ago, and then you see those kids that you taught in Sunday school coming back into church and going, man, and you realize that those seeds that you put in kids' lives are now starting to show fruit and bear fruit in their lives. That's a beautiful thing. Use your gifts to serve in the church. So that's the second thing. Third thing, to prioritize worship and small group gatherings. So every local church develops rhythms of meeting together and coming together that are appropriate for its area and its culture and um, the life that we live in. And, you know, we don't want to have meetings, and, and we've been a part of that, of a church where there were, there were so many meetings during the week that it was, it was literally like a millstone around your neck. You had Monday nights, there's Tuesday nights, that Wednesday night, there's Thursday night, that Friday night you could choose to do this thing, nothing on Saturday, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and it was just, it was full out. It was a lot. And I realized that in that thing, that, that there's, that's, that's not healthy in that moment. You need, there's life that people live as well. So we've got to, we've got to find that, that we don't want to make it impossible for people to, to come in. But we also realize that the, that word ecclesia that we looked at isn't just, isn't just the, the called out ones. We're not just called to be separate from society. But as I said, we're called together. We're called to an assembly. We're called to come together. And, you know, we, we, we got to get, it's hard because I'm preaching to the choir because you guys that I'm looking out of here are here week in and week out. But we need to not be blasé about the gathering of the saints because there is something that God does when we come together corporately that is different from what you can experience on your own. You can sit at home and put on the best Bethel CD and listen to that or maybe not Bethel, whatever. You can put on any amazing worship, gifted musicians, people who love Jesus and worship in your own bedroom, and sing your heart out, and go for it. And it is great, and it is beautiful, and I encourage you to do that. But there's something different when you come together with the people of God, and you do it together. It just hits different. Hebrews chapter 10 says, let us not get in the habit of giving up meeting together with the saints. And again, it's not a... It's not a pride thing that we can go, hey, look at our church, we're so big, we get, like, look how many people come. It's not that at all. It's not an insecurity on my part. I'm going to do what I do, whether there's one or whether there's a hundred. But I come and I, I'm faithfully at church because I know it's good for me. And I know it's good for other people that I come. Like that finger cut off from the body, the body hurts when you're not here. We lose out if you don't come. Whether you think you bring something or not, whether you're actively bringing a word or singing, or we lose out when you're not here. And it's, it's only recently in the kind of last maybe 200 years, not even as much as that, 100 years, that the church has become, particularly in the West, has become more and more complacent about meeting together. If you look in persecuted countries, and they get together as often as they can. Because they are desperate for that life from other believers and what can come. But the hyper-individualism of Western society means, oh man, I'm okay. Yeah, it's a bit rainy this Sunday morning. I think I might just stay in bed and YouTube that church service. <laughs> I can choose what I like. I can choose a preacher who says the right things, who doesn't stumble over his words. I can choose the right, I can choose the songs I want to listen to. I can choose the volume that I want it to be at. And we can, oh, just pause. I'm just going to go make... There's so much convenience around. And we want to keep it nice and tidy. But church is a bit messy when you get together with other people. And we're like, oh, I did business with that oak in the week, and he shafted me, or he hasn't paid my invoice, and now I've got to go stand next to him at church and be like, 
praise Jesus. And all I can do is look at Nick because he hasn't paid his invoice yet. And I'm like, mm-hmm. And it's hard. And some of us, you know, some of those, some of those things are real. Like you, you get tired, man. Like sometimes you just don't feel like coming to church. Let me share a shocker, confessions of a pastor. Sometimes I don't feel like coming to church on a Sunday morning. The angels don't lift me out of bed and brush my teeth and dress me. There's one that brings me coffee every morning, but the rest of them don't do much. And they don't help me out of bed. You know, some of us, it's a, it's a busyness of schedules. We brain these things, and we, we seem to have these priorities. And, and unlike, unlike priority list A, we've got, like, work and family holidays and school and all these things. And these things are, like, major priorities. And those are, like, things that we, we don't miss out on those. We, we definitely... I mean, can you imagine going, like, saying to your boss, listen, buddy, I'm just going to YouTube it today. Um, not going to make it, but you all have a good day. You have a good time. I'm just going to stay at home and pray about work. You think that'll go well for you? Hey, is that going to be, is that going to, you might not have a job by the end of the day. And yet we've got this priority list B on which we put things like church and small group. And, and I don't want to put legalism on anybody. Please don't think that you have to come to church to please anybody or to please Jesus. But we also pendulum swing so far away from either of those things where we're like, legalism must go, otherwise Jesus hates you and he's cross with you. That's not what I'm saying. Don't hear what I'm not saying. God wants a people to be with, not a place to be in. But it's good for us when we come together. All right, I think that's enough on that. Huh? Prioritize worship settings. And then lastly, fourthly, love the whole church. Love the whole church. And that's, that's all churches that call on the name of Jesus. Because he's the differentiating factor in a lot of things here. But all, Jesus, all churches that regard Jesus as the Son of God and very God himself, who came to die for our sins, those are the churches that we should love. You see, the New Testament church, it doesn't see, it doesn't see different churches in, in different places, but rather one church in many places. That's how it views it. Now, we might, um, you know, each local body chooses how they represent the church, and, and each local church is an embodiment of the church universal because that's us. We should be diverse. We should be different and weird and out there and you know, the church is both local and global. So there's the small C local church and the big C church worldwide. We're one family. And for those who have a family that is more than just you, you know you might have some quirky relatives in your family. And if you don't have any quirky relatives, you're the quirky relative. But, you know, sometimes we're a little bit embarrassed about some of the people that we're related to, and we're like, oh, do we really need to invite them out into public with us? And maybe we could just bring them takeaway. But what we, and, and some of us see the church like that, where we're like, and, and we talk down about other, other churches or denominations or motive, maybe even our own church about those things, because we're a little bit embarrassed about it, and it's like, it's a bit weird. And, but honestly, friends, you know, sometimes we get so caught up in our own flow and our own movement and our own thing, and we think we're better than, and we think we're all that it is, and all that, we're the only ones who had God's, God's presence, and we're not. Honestly, we're not. We're just an expression of how the local church can operate. And I think that the beauty of how, the God, of, of how God does, and maybe the way that, and the reason that God has so many varied and different movements and flows and denominations and churches, because it's the manifold, multifaceted, multi-textured, amazing, beautiful wisdom of God that's expressed through the local church. I used to hate traditional churches because I found them stifling and deathly. And do you know what changed, what changed my perception of those things? Was I begin to understand, was it, it actually happened when I studied, so I studied theology, and so I begin to understand some of what they were saying on that screen. I thought, yes, man, how can you put it up? And it's just like rote learning or reading out of a book. And you're like, same thing every week. And nobody, like you look around and people like know it off by heart. And you're like, man, you're just saying stuff. But when I actually understood the words that were being spoken and what they meant and what they implied, there was an incredible beauty in the depth of theology that those things were teaching. And I began, I felt God challenge me and say, remember all those times you came in and you were judgmental? Where was the problem? 
That was my heart. I had a critical heart towards those things because I had a certain perception about that denomination. Now, there are things that we all do wrong, and we've got to be able to call it out and go, hey, man, that's unbiblical. Like, why do you do that thing? But please don't think that we're the ones who get it all right. We, uh, hopefully, we get a lot right. I know, hopefully, we don't, we don't intentionally do stuff wrong. We don't intentionally try to be weird. But sometimes we are going to be those things. And so we need to be humble and contrite in how we view the church. And so our response to the church being the bride of Christ, the body of Christ in the temple, one of the ways that we need to respond in that is to love the whole church. Let's pray. Jesus, hey, maybe stand with me as we pray. Dog, you come and play, baby. Jesus, thank you for your church. Thank you for these metaphors, these pictures of the church that you've given us. And I thank you that we might be the bride. I ask you, Jesus, to make us that radiant and holy and spotless bride. Wash us with the water of your word. We might be the bride, but you are the bridegroom. And help us, Jesus, to keep our eyes fixed on you who gave your life to rescue us. We might be the temple, but you, God, you are the glorious presence who inhabits us. And we might be the body, but you are the head who sustains us, who unites us, who cares for us, and who sends us out into the world to fulfill our purpose. Friends, just as we're in a time of, of prayer and um, just being aware and opening your heart to God, and, and I just, a friend of mine shared with me a dream he had. And he had a picture of us praying for hearts and minds that were hurting, hearts that were broken and minds that were hurting and, and where wounds had been inflicted on us and we were suffering from those wounds. And he had a picture of us praying in church for those things. And so this morning, I want to be obedient to that dream you gave him, God. And I want to ask you, friends, if, if you've been hurt by church, maybe it's, maybe it's a heart hurt that you've taken an offense with something someone has said or something the church has done to you. I don't know, however you want to word it. And maybe it's a head hurt where where you don't understand or you disagree with the way things are going and, and that is a stumbling block for you and that's something that you are struggling with and that you live with day in and day out. And so if that's you, I want to ask you to respond. If you've been hurt by the church, I want to ask you to respond this morning and, and just keep, while all the eyes are closed, I want to ask you, just why don't you put your hand up if, you, if that's you, if you want us to pray, we're not going to expose anybody or ask you what it is or embarrass anybody. Why don't you put your hand up with me if you feel that you want to be prayed for and you want to respond to that hurt that you've experienced from the church. If there's anybody out there, I want to pray for you. Thank you. That's amazing. Father God, I, I come and I lift up those hearts and those minds that are in pain and that are hurt, Lord God. And we want to pray for those right now, Lord. And we cry out to you, Jesus, and we say, won't you come and heal those hurts? Won't you come and heal those offenses, those wounds, where we've been foolish or, or, or we've made mistakes and, or where the enemy has, has caused pain and, and, and suffering and hurt to come in and, and maybe separated us out from the body, Lord, or separated someone we know out from the body, Father. I want to pray that you would bring healing in those places, that you would bring a deep and, and lasting healing to those wounds, God, that you would set hearts free, that you would clear minds, from wounds and hurts that are held on to, Lord. Father, where we have developed a, an identity out of the wound, won't you set us free from that thing, Jesus? Help us turn our eyes from the, the things that are going on around us and turn our eyes to you, Jesus. Jesus.